When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Over Under Movies, the podcast where we choose one overrated movie and one underrated movie combined by theme or, you know, storytelling, any and any other way we see fit, and we uh, argue and sometimes agree about them. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Ryan Oliver. This is Octay Ege Kozak. And this podcast is, of course, brought to you by theplaylist.net, our home for the Playlist Podcast Network. Um, we have a few other shows on this network, Adjust Your Tracking being one of them, uh, my other podcast, and the another one called The Playlist Podcast. Uh, we're sure to be adding more shows uh, on the network soon, but for now you can find those two, plus, of course, this one, Over Under, uh, Over Under Movies, over at theplaylist.net or on the Playlist Podcast iTunes feed. So uh, with that out of the way, um, Octay, you have, uh, it's your picks on this episode, and you have spun us um, you have sent us spiraling down into the mind of one Charlie Kaufman. Um, there's uh, several uniting factors between these movies that we're going to talk about today, and uh, the main one being um, Oscar-winning screenwriter Charlie Kaufman and his very particular uh, movies. Um, another one would be that the directors of both films uh, both got their start in music videos before they became feature filmmakers. And I'm sure we'll land on a few other connections and, you know, crossover appeal in both these movies. But um, we're going to start with your overrated pick, uh, which I'm going to just say I, I could not disagree with you more on this pick. But uh, it is Eternal Sunshine on the Spotless Mind. You know, Valentine's Day is three goddamn days away. I want it resolved. I'm willing to be the one to resolve it. So I call her and she's changed her number. So I walked over to Antic Attic, you know, to get her something. I thought, you know, I'd go over to work, give her an early Valentine, and you won't believe it. She's there with this guy, this really young guy, and she looks at me like she doesn't even know who I am. I should say before I hand it off to Octa, this is a big favorite, this movie, over at the playlist. Uh, I believe... Um, writer Ollie Littleton has written uh, several really beautiful kind of personal essays on this movie on the site in the past. And it's landed up high in our sort of best of the decade, best of 2000s list. It's always appeared very high. But you, Octa Ege Kozak, you are a bold man indeed. You are calling um, this 2004 movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You're calling it overrated. And um, let's start there, man. Why, why, do you, why do you feel so differently than the rest of us, Octa? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I, I would like to clear out that this is one of those uh, soft, overrated picks that we have. And uh, uh, every once in a while, when we have, when a critic picks a picks a film like this, we have to kind of clear out the uh, the meaning, the difference between overrated and bad. Uh, just the fact that uh, a critic picks a film as overrated doesn't mean that they think it's bad or it doesn't work, or um, they just think like like 
and it, this this goes back to what you just said about the film is that like there's this um angulating adoration for eternal sunshine of the spotless mind uh that i think in a way that makes it look like the perfect kind of romance for uh for cinephiles for film lovers it's an incredibly creative film it's it's an incredibly touching film um and it's 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 beautiful in in many ways and that's the first thing that i want to create clear out is that you know to to people who are maybe listening for the first time uh this podcast that the whole point of overrated and underrated is that we're not talking about good or bad we're talking about films that we think um might be yeah exactly like might be overrated and i think eternal sunshine is definitely uh one of those for me is because i feel like after uh my my personal relationship to it uh is kind of directly connected to my underrated pick adaptation uh when that movie came out in 2002 i fell in love with it and i loved it so much that i studied I went deep into Charlie Kaufman and uh, I was a really huge fan. And after a while, like when the the marketing of Eternal, Eternal Sunshine, everything about it looks so incredibly creative and amazing. And I think I had my uh, expectations so high that this was going to be an instant masterpiece uh, that when I saw it in the theater, there was a couple of issues that that really like pulled me away from like going all full blast loving it Mm. and maybe because of that mild disappointment i kind of didn't have much of a desire to revisit it uh which is kind of strange considering i've seen being john malkovich multiple times i've seen adaptation like an insane amount of times that i don't even want to admit um (laughs) and and i thought that was weird that like even a movie that I just didn't really have much of a desire to revisit, even after, you know, uh, I got married and my wife is a big fan of the film that we, we didn't really like find, I didn't really find some time to like get back into it. So I was a little bit afraid of this pick in a way, because I was thinking I haven't seen it, uh, ever since it first came out and it kind of snowballed into this giant, uh, cult favorite among kind of cinephiles and intellectuals as a romance romance with brains with heart it's like the, the complete picture and the 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 like the ad- adulation for this film like it goes beyond love some people really really love this movie um and have this like intense personal connection to it that i didn't feel and i was a little bit afraid of like you know uh having this be our pick and uh talking about it uh, teasing it in the last episode and i was kind of like what if i catch up to it now and i finally uh plug myself into uh i finally get tapped into what people love so much about this film and uh i kind of came away from it with the with pretty much the same uh reaction that i had in 2004 maybe even a little tiny teeny bit worse uh that that's kind of ref- uh that's kind of about uh the kate winslet character that i have a couple more issues with that i didn't have when when the movie first came out Mm. probably because i was like 20 24 25 in my mid-20s the perfect age for that kind of to be like in in entranced like uh to be enchanted by that kind of uh character um and i think this is like i said an incredibly beautiful and creative film in many ways it's uh i'm not a big fan of uh michelle gondry and i think 
uh, I don't know if you guys have seen Human Nature. Maybe we'll uh, get into it later on. But um, I feel like his two best films uh, are Eternal Sunshine and Human Nature. And uh, I think his his kind of brand of like crazy out there whimsy uh is that that i find really grating and annoying it's kind of pulled back by charlie kaufman's like kind of sardonic mm. uh life view his 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 kind of like morbid outlook it's just they kind of like balance each other in a way that i think like he's like the best uh screenwriter to actually like get uh michelle gondry to kind of scale back on that like annoying tendencies that he has uh so i think and this is i've i think eternal sunshine is by a long shot his best film still mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean I, I i do think uh it is it is a beautiful and creative film and i i have uh a couple of bullet points of issues with it that i want to uh, talk to you guys about um uh, the first of which is um, I feel like this movie, and this is kind of what I felt when I first saw it as well, it feels a little bit overwritten in a way. And uh, let me explain what I mean by that is that is that it seems like they had this like perfect story structure to keep many of the elements of the story, including the mystery and the suspense of it that dominates the second act uh, in in these perfect spots. And then maybe during post-production, maybe during the screenwriting process, the, 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 the whole, the structure of it kind of gets moved around. And some of the pieces that, uh, that get moved around kind of hurt the, the suspense, um, of the, the story itself. And, uh, I'm mainly referencing the fact that we know from that insanely long pretty pre-credit sequence, which is 18 minutes before the credit starts, Mm starts, that must be in the top 10, movies of like how long it takes before the credits begin yeah um but with that 18 minute opening where we see jim carrey's character and um and clementine uh kate Winslet's character meet and have this like really tumultuous kind of meet cute that just like goes up and down with the with the crazy waves that the kate Winslet character has uh but from that point from the beginning we know that the uh the mind erasing uh that jim carrey's character goes through uh and halfway through the movie there's this whole kind of chase within his mind to stop the erasure from happening but the the suspense is completely sucked out of it because we know from the beginning that he didn't succeed that she was erased from his mind and that kind of makes it um those sequences a little bit duller and less exciting to me so that's my first point so let's let's get into that first and then we can like move on to the other ones what do you guys uh first off i mean i guess um i'm waiting for you guys to tell me overall why i'm wrong and (laughs) and also um to maybe get into that point a little bit what do you guys think about that does that bother you at all or do you think that's just like i think why this movie works for a lot of people and is one of my like this is in my top five from uh, any movie from the 2000s on, this is in my top five. I think this is a great film. I think it's the best film that's been made from a Charlie so, Kaufman script, and it's because it works on an emotional level. But even to get specific, mm. if you watch the movie now, you can very easily dissect it and be like, yeah, they give all that stuff away. So what was their interest? I think their interest is in acknowledging the uh, the total futility of what Jim Carrey's trying to do in the movie, but also the, like, 
complete sadness in it. Like once you've decided, mm-hmm. you can't go back. And if you lose memories, like that, that is a very sad thing. And the movie is reflecting that. So I think while it plays out in a sort of anxiety ridden um, or suspenseful, like tenor, it's kind of playing in that tone. I don't mm-hmm. think we're supposed to be genuinely like tense about whether he's going to escape or not. It's just like, it's the it's the fact that we do know he's not going to do it makes it all the more sad because he can mm-hmm. fight all he wants and that's the thing he kind of has to realize by the end mm-hmm. in his as he's trying to escape with his memory of Kate Winslet and I think I just think it actually mm-hmm. adds a whole a whole layer to the movie and I I find this movie to be so incredibly layered like the the subplots do what subplots are supposed to do. They yeah, add the Tom Wilkinson subplot is beautiful. It's so beautiful, and it weaves in and deepens the story, and suddenly makes what is a kind of tiny, like indie vibe sci-fi movie a sort of grand one, where it, this world exists, where we're seeing the way this this um, made-up technology can affect people in more ways than just our lead couple. So I think, I think it the movie operates on a lot of levels. I think it has incredible rewatch value because of Gondry's just go for broke stylistic um, abandon that fits this movie perfectly. And um, side note, I would say his other best movie is Dave Chappelle's block party, but that's just me. Um, but uh, oh, yeah. yeah, I don't, maybe it's because I don't count that as one. I guess it is. It's, it's one, one of his movies. Yeah. That yeah. Movie's a lot of fun. Yeah. He, he fits with Dave Chappelle's vibe. I'd say a lot, but um, I'm with you that usually Gondry is sort of aggravating, aggravating to me. I've kind of don't even really follow him as much anymore because like stuff like science Asleep, I just was like, so kind of bored by that movie, even though I was extremely excited for it. Yeah. Because, that's the stuff that I was talking about. Right. That's like, Reading and annoying his his whimsy when when he gets to write and direct that's the kind of stuff that he comes up with and i just i just Agreed. find that it it has this vibe of like uh like contemporary french whimsy really bugs me because it's like a combination of genres and styles that 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 i find to be annoying like it's a combination of like that wistful mm. french new wave combined with like the jacques tati style broad Mm-hmm. Uh, imaginative physical comedy, but yeah, let's let's let uh, Ryan jump in. Yeah, I actually don't think this movie has a lot of rewatch value for me. Oh, I think. Interesting. Um, interesting. Yeah, I this is only the second time I've seen it, and me too. Like you, Eric, I was I was swept away in it the first time, and I I do love the idea of the sort of like secular nature that it, that this will just keep on happening mm-hmm. because they're. As, as human beings are just doomed to repeat the same mistakes that we're prone to make. But approaching this the second time, knowing what the twist of the movie was, I'm like, okay, is this going to be, is this going to be fight club where it does get deeper each viewing and the twist is kind of irrelevant to the things that it's trying to get at? Or is this going to be the game where it's sort of <laughs> for me, where it's like all about getting to the ending and there's not really much left for me to chew on. And sad for me it was more it was more the game for me like i it's one of those movies where i i would show like if i was a professor i would show this in a film class because i can't think of anything that's like really wrong with it from like from a writing from editing from an acting from a directing standpoint i think it's almost like almost as perfect as a film can be but you said something about like works on an emotional level and i i it doesn't work for me on an emotional level Mm. for uh for me and i i don't know if it's because I've had breakups, but I've never had one on that like severe level or I've never like had a like long enough relationship break up to feel that. So I, I don't know, maybe I'm at just a pure 
emotional disconnect with this movie. But um, I, I think it's an incredibly well crafted movie. But I I am I gotta say I'm with Octay. I've never really understood the the feverish uh, love for this movie, and it's um, I, I have not seen Synecdoche, New York, sadly. But mm. it's um, I, I mean I, I don't want to be reductive and say it's my least favorite script from a or least favorite adaptation of a charlie kaufman script and i would probably say confessions of a dangerous mind would take that uh dishonor i guess but (laughs) human human nature too i don't know if you guys watched that i haven't seen that yet i haven't either it has some like weird out there ideas but yeah it's it's not it's not very memorable and the same goes for uh confessions of a dangerous mind as well but yeah it's it's uh it's an interesting i mean it doesn't sound like ryan that 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 detail that we're talking about, about the lack of suspense, has really bothered you. It's just like an overall um, reaction to the film that... I can uh, also say, I, I don't want to shout over you, I can also say this This came out the same year as Garden State, so it kind of had the one-two punch of the, the, the birth of the manic pixie dream girl. It's, it's almost like I, an I antidote know. to that character before that archetype even existed in a way right it almost like watching watching this this late like oh like 12 years after it came out it almost looks like it's like a parody of those characters or or not a parody but like a realistic approach to those characters because this character is like truly i mean that that's i mean let's get into that that's that's another bullet point that i have is that uh watching it a second time the reason i liked it a little bit less than the than in 2004 is that i find kate winslet's character to be uh genuinely like grating and pretty terrible like she's just like impulsive and horrible in so many ways and self-centered and she's one of those characters that like you see in real life where you're just like you shouldn't be in relationships you shouldn't be in like there's this one scene that's supposed to represent like uh at near the beginning where uh the the medical people are taking out like the bad memories mm-hmm. where they have a fight about like you know jim carrey says something about, i don't think you could handle having a kid and then it's that point where I was just like knowing this character fairly well, like 30, 35 minutes in the movie. I was just like, yes, yes, tell him not never to have a ch- have a child. She should not be having a kid. She should not even be having a goldfish. And it's just like this this kind. Of, she's she's like such a. And I think the the point of it was that in order to to set him set her up during the first hour of the film, uh, as as if like showing the reasons why this relationship didn't work, showing the reasons why they shouldn't be together, and then later on to brilliantly kind of pivot towards uh, why they're almost soulmates, why they belong together, why they're going to like keep going through the same journey over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of those, like, it just has a great way. It has The last act of this movie has some of the like, most beautiful moments that romanticize what relationships are really about because it's it, it shows like it gets into like the little moments like those mm-hmm. little moments where everybody's just like this moment is so perfect i want it to be the rest of my life and it it, it has some of those like beautiful beautiful images that it gets into and i think the point of like setting up that first hour to say that kate Winslet's character is so impulsive and terrible towards uh jim jim carrey's character and she is uh and in a way that like makes perfect sense but makes me so so mad that like uh, her her friends say like oh she probably erased you from her memory because she just felt like doing that at the time because she's impulsive and it's just like that's such a horrible terrible thing to do but in a way that's just like with that kind of a character where, where a relationship with that kind of person is like this uh, it's like the highs are really high the lows are really low yeah. and it's like this roller coaster ride and then it's just like and then all of a sudden there's no 
there's nothing that you can like really latch onto because then all of a all of a second she could be like ah, I'm just bored with you whatever I'm just gonna move on and I've I've been through like personally haven't been through many relationships like that I did go through like one that was like that so maybe that's why I can like relate to it more than um, maybe maybe uh, uh, Ryan could but I did go through like situations like that with like the dating world of my friends and like who get into relationships with people like that and I think maybe that's what kind of makes it hard for me to root for that relationship. Mm-hmm. I the, the where I completely differ is that I you can't negate Jim Carrey in this equation because uh, he might be the protagonist of this movie and Charlie Kaufman might arguably know how to write men better than women, but actually maybe not after Anomalisa that that maybe isn't oh, yeah. the uh-huh. case anymore. But um, you. Uh, Jim Carrey is just as much at fault and it's not like he's perfect. I mean, you, you can even bring up that exact scene where he says, I I mean, that isn't exactly a warm, intimate response to give to your partner that you're in a serious relationship with. If she says like, she might be very impulsive, but there's another thing that's, I think kind of easy to forget about this movie is there's maybe what five or 10 minutes that is actually Kate Winslet. That is the unfiltered we're seeing Kate Winslet in the real in world. The real world. Yes, Every yes. other scene in this movie is Jim Carrey's memory of her. So if, so like this movie actually even addresses the whole pan, uh, manic pixie dream girl. She has a whole line when he first meet, um, he, after meeting her and he ran away from her in this beach scene that they had, he goes and finds her at her bookstore and he has a memory of this in the movie. And she says like, I'm not here to like fix everything for you. I'm just a fucked mm-hmm. up girl on my own, right. Trying to get her own. Like for one, I love that. That's like a preemptive response to the problem of the manic pixie. And she says, it, and she before, says the same thing at the end too, which right. is, I thought but was Jim, brilliant. But Jim Carrey says, I still thought you would save me in the end. And that's his memory of her. And then his memory of her is her saying, I know you did like being understanding, but that's not the real Kate Winslet. She's a real person that has her own needs and wants and desires. And, um, I, I don't know the more, the reason I find, um, some reasons I find more reach watchability is that it's, it is easy maybe for us three in particular to cite to kind of understand the Jim Carrey angle and think like, Oh, she's, she's crazy, you know, or whatever. But it's more complicated than that because he's at fault too. And he's not necessarily a great partner to Kate Winslet. And we see a lot of the time his perspective and I can still be like, he's not really being that great. And he's pretty closed off. And she, the part of what makes them such a fascinating couple that I totally believe would be in a cycle of like falling in love, hating each other, falling in love is because it's also what makes them kind of a perfect pair is the way they're so different that they could actually balance each other out in a really healthy way. And I, I don't know, maybe they wouldn't, maybe she wouldn't be a bad parent, but you, you, it's easy to, to take that perspective that, Oh my God, don't have children, this woman, but that's the perspective we're being given on her. It's not the Mm -hmm. full picture. So maybe she could be a great parent. I don't know. I I think you could argue that at least. Mm -hmm. I think for me, you know, back to that sort of lack of emotional uh, touch for me in this movie is I just, and maybe I'm not paying enough attention to it, but I I feel like I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it twice. And so I feel like I'm confident enough to just say that, I don't feel like I really know enough about both of them, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know mm-hmm. a little bit about the Jim Carrey character because we're seeing it from his perspective. But like you pointed out, she's we're seeing what he sees of her for most of the movie. So it's like we don't really 
uh, we get a little bit of her agency, but like not enough. And then he's just so introverted that I don't feel like I understand, totally understand either character. Mm-hmm. And when that second, you know, half of the movie does kick in, it does, I feel like, become all, all about the sort of like escaping the the memory erasing, which is stunning. It's a, it's stunning sequences, but I, I never really... I, I don't feel like I know these characters enough to really kind of get invested in what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and my, my rebuttal to kind of what you were talking about, Eric, is that, yes, I think it would have been... I think your point would have made uh, uh, more sense to me if the sequence that w- where we see the real Kate Winslet, which is basically made clear through the fact that she has blue hair Mm -hmm. so pretty much if anybody's like confused about like which one is his in his wine which one is like real life pretty much whenever you see kate was with blue hair that's in real life Mm -hmm. and uh i don't think uh you know of course it's obvious that we're seeing we're inside his mind so we're seeing these arguments and these 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 bad moments within their relationship from his point of view and of course when a bad bad breakup happens and someone is hurt like that we you know people tend to kind of exaggerate their their point of view maybe uh turn the other person to more of a villain than they really are in their mind so that would have made perfect sense if they played it in a way that made kate winslet in real life look different or act different or be a bit more sympathetic maybe uh but she kind of comes across as pretty much the exact same person that she he has in his memory almost worse in a way like it, it, the, the the scenes of her in real life uh she's um she's more clearly like almost borderline bipolar uh when they first meet like she kind of gives him this like uh, constant hot and cold vibe that like raises an immediate red flag that well to be fair in that moment Mm -hmm. she is you know just had her memory erased and is Mm kind of confused at what's going on so that's 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 a little understandable but but overall like her her relationship with uh elijah wood who kind of like steals uh jim carrey's identity and like go like kind of uh, goes after her and like how impulsive she is with him as well and how sad she is and then like you know and, and of course like that might also be in reference to the horrible relationship that she got over but her her uh, memories uh, erased so maybe that's like commentary from from Charlie Kaufman and Michelle Gondry about like you know you may you may have your memory erased but in like inside your soul or whatever like inside your your mind the pain will linger mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh it's like it's like you get shot and then for some reason you might not remember that you got shot, but like you'll feel the pain the next day. It's what I find uh, so hopeful so, about the yeah, ending like of the movie thing. is like, yeah. um, is that they are destined to probably rinse and repeat this. Like the, the final shot is so beautiful the way it, it repeats it like four times them running down the snow, like to say they're destined to maybe keep doing this. But I think that's, that that was the idea. I guess yeah, like they, yeah. they you scrapped that at the last minute, but the, right. I don't know if they even shot those scenes, but it was supposed to be that the movie was supposed to be bookended where there was a framing device of like showing the old, uh, Jim Carrey going in to get yet another, like, right. like, they, like, like they keep doing this for like decades until they die. Basically. But there's something uh, kind of beautiful in that, at least the way yeah. I, I read it to me, there's something beautiful in still trying. And that's what, is so great about the ending they went with is that they know these things about each other. They're listening to their, the awful things they said about the other person on their tapes, but yet they're, they basically come to the conclusion that it's worth it. It's worth it to try it again. I think that's a pretty beautiful sentiment and one that actually, I think a lot of 
classic or sort of standard by the numbers rom-coms try to push but they don't ever convince you of because I don't know I feel like nine times out of ten they're like you can't stand the people you know I don't know I don't need to I don't need to reduce all rom-coms to one certain kind but like there's just something so lived in and honest about the 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 ending point of this movie I mean I I think part of the reason why uh, cinephiles and intellectuals really like this as a straight up romance and I think people understand that this is a romance Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, it does a really intelligent and original way of of approaching an idea that's admittedly as hokey uh, as like the idea of soulmates mm-hmm. like people having soulmates like you kind of understand that these two people as mismatched as they might be that they might be soulmates and uh it does a really interesting way of like dealing with that concept that just that makes it kind of intriguing in a cerebral way so i think that that's that's part of the reason why people are approaching mm-hmm. uh people of uh you know people like that are approaching are loving this film so much and maybe uh overlooking some of the logical issues that uh that i have with the screenplay and uh and stuff like that like like you said it's just like it's such a they approach that in in such a beautiful way that it handles these these issues but in a smart way that that i think people are willing to like overlook that and then in the end that's kind of the message that you get about it uh, about the the idea of like soulmates uh kind of constantly like these people are going to just keep constantly doing that and in a way like i feel like it would have given the that framing device if they kept it in the movie would have given it like that much more of an edge and I, I'm, I kind of feel bad that they didn't keep that because I think that would have made it, the film like a teeny bit bizarre in the right direction I like the original ending me personally. too I find the hopefulness in that that I think the movie needs at that point because you you it's totally uh, understandable if you'd come out near the end of the movie and think these two just you know we we've been through their memories we know or his memories we know that maybe they shouldn't be together but I love that there is this pushing on because if you have certain knowledge and you can learn from it, then a relationship can actually grow and learn from that. I think it's a pretty awesome, like, uh, I don't know. Charlie Kaufman doesn't put messages in his movies, but I think it's a pretty beautiful, like, thing to put out there. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I, I Real quick, I mean, John Bryan made one of my favorite oh, yeah. movie scores ever with this movie. I mm-hmm. love the music. It's so perfectly in tune with the sadness uh, and bizarre anxiety vibe of the movie. So it's so perfect. And I don't know. I mean, I'll defend the Kate Winslet character. I think I, I love that character and I totally get why he's drawn to her. And that's enough for me because we don't know enough about her, at least her in the reality of the world, but she's, I get why he's drawn to her and that's more than enough. Um, for me, I love her performance. It might be my favorite Kate Winslet performance, to be honest. It's good. So. Yeah. I, I think yeah. if she, oh, yeah. I think a, she should have won her Oscar enough. for this one. Agreed. I mean, Agreed. She I, lost like what Hillary Swank that year. Give me a fucking break. I mean, yeah, no million dollar Hillary baby. Swank, but yeah. I do, do not like that movie. So. <laughs> and that was already <laughs> Swank's second Oscar too. It was weird. And then Kate Winslet yeah. wins yeah. for the reader. You know, like it's just Which weird. A how pretty bad yeah. movie. Truth mm-hmm. People never uh, really get it for the actual role they deserve. That like rarely ever happens. True. Huge credit to Jim Carrey in this movie. I think he's. It's one of his. Uh, other than Man on the Moon, for me, one of his best performances. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's it's also a tribute to his willingness to do something different because this wasn't a, like, McConaughey out of a need to change my career image move because this <laughs> movie came out a year after 
Bruce Almighty, which was like the biggest hit of his career. Yeah. So it's like he didn't need to he do was this still movie. A huge star, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's he didn't point. need to do this movie, but it was you know it was a role he wanted to stick his teeth into, and I think he's fantastic in it. Yeah. If 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 he did it now, you'd be like, oh yeah, you know, his career is waning. He's trying to do different things. Uh, you know, a lot of actors like Robin Williams did that at some point where he was just like, oh, I'm not as big of a star now. Let me try his like these weird dark roles for a while and you know but but yeah he was at the height of it and he definitely didn't need to and that just goes to the the power of the uh the originality of the the project that like attracted all these people to it i feel like and yeah the i have nothing this you know really negative to say about like the 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 performances or the music or like one of my favorite aspects of this film is the fact that they did a lot of in-camera special effects uh and those are brilliant uh, even if I hated the screenplay or everything else about it, I would still be captivated by like how they, and and the best parts about those in camera effects are the ones that you only see if you're like really paying attention. Like there are mm-hmm. moments where just like they're walking down the street and the the uh, the billboards and the signs gradually start disappearing. So good. And uh, there's there's some like really really creative, and I love that like you know like in in dreams like sometimes you can't see people's faces so instead of putting like a cgi blur effect they put like uh like some kind of uh mask over people's faces and like when when things are like practical when things are in camera it makes it look and feel so much more tangible and therefore so much more dreamlike agreed like it, it it captures that that so well and the whole thing about like the forced perspectives during the sequences where he's supposed to be a baby and it's just that 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 stuff is just brilliant and and uh, uh beautiful but yeah it's just like i just have those like uh minor issues for for me that i wouldn't be as hung up on maybe because uh, if if I wasn't so in love with our underrated film, so maybe we should start like pivoting yeah. towards there. Let's do it. Um, yeah. That 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 if I didn't have this like insanely high expectation to come out with like oh this is gonna be yet another masterpiece like adaptation that I think I would have. But yeah, I still I still have uh you know maybe approaching this film with a sense of logic about like how this could. Uh, you know about the the structure or the lack of mystery during the second act because you know how it's going to turn out or mm-hmm. about like some of the minor issues i have with um you know if a if a uh, a company like this actually existed like everybody would know about it and if someone's memory would be erased all it would take for the boyfriend who got erased to, would be to come go up to the the girlfriend and say like oh yeah you know you obviously went to the the company like if, if if a technology like that existed they would like everybody would know about it and all that stuff like it's just that the little little things like that mm-hmm. that kind of bug me about it i just like that's what that keeps me away from like uh truly enjoying it and that's that's another like little little point that i'm going to bring up that i feel like if it was like handled with like kind of like magical realism the way that being john malkovich was instead of like oh this is an office that like everybody knows about that people like make appointments and this is like like there's like a science fiction value behind it that doesn't really hold water Mm. logically in many 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 ways that like kind of keeps me from it as well but that's a whole other like discussion that we could get into for like another half an hour so let's um yeah let's yeah what what do you think about moving on to adaptation let's do it to write about a flower to dramatize a flower i have to show the flower's arc and the flower's arc stretches back to the beginning of life how did this flower get here What was its journey? It is a journey of evolution, adaptation, the journey we all take. 
a journey that unites each and every one of us. Darwin writes that we all come from the very first single cell organism. Yet here I am. And there's LaRoche. And there's Orlean. And there's the ghost orchid. All trapped in our own bodies, in moments in history. That's it. That's what I need to do. Tie all of history together. That is as good a point as any to swing over to adaptation because this is a movie that is kind of obsessed with uh, a screenwriter's pursuit of logic, of telling a screenwriter's pursuit of telling the best story that they can and trying to do something original, you know, uh, the um, and that's where uh, the movie adaptation kind of, um, I, you know, I, after hearing what you're saying, you're hearing your thoughts on Eternal Sunshine Octave, I'm not surprised that adaptation is the one that you're more obsessed with. And it really um uh, kind of fits your, you know, your. It's got a meta angle for you. You're, you're a screenwriter. You, I could see why you dig into this movie. But why don't you tell us why? Um, it's a little bit harder, I'd say, to to argue this as an underrated movie since it is also won an Oscar. Um, I believe Chris Cooper won Best Supporting Os- uh, Actor for this one, and Nicolas Cage was nominated. Meryl Streep was. The script was nominated, but anyway, um, an Oscar nominee nonetheless. Um, why do you, why do you think adaptation is underrated? Well, the, the the whole thing goes back to uh, to time. Like over time, I feel like Eternal Sunshine became this like beloved cult classic that everybody, you know, a lot of uh, cinephiles, a lot of fans keep bringing up, like the quotes and videos and memes or whatever from that movie are just like they always uh, they always come up or whenever there's like a best films of the uh, the last decade or something like that like lists like that it's just it's it's always there and I feel like uh, yeah adaptation was really well received at the time uh, I don't know if it made like a lot of money or whatever like I don't particularly care about that at least for this episode uh, but um, and you know it had some like Oscar attention and um, but it kind of when people talk about like the best Charlie Kaufman uh, written movies or the best Spike Jones movies, like if people bring up Spike Jones, they're going to bring up probably being John Malkovich or her. Um, or if the people bring up Charlie Kaufman, they're going to bring up uh, eternal sunshine. Um, and I feel like uh, this film to me, at least maybe in a personal way is so perfectly written and executed that I do look at it as like this really unique uh, flower, shall I say? <laughs> fitting, fitting. Yeah, it's 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 like it's like unique in the middle of all these like very similar flowers in Hollywood that we see. It's the ghost and orchid this, in Hollywood. This is, that, <laughs> this is the film that is yeah, it's the ghost orchid of Hollywood. This is the, this is the unique, incredibly original and incredibly well put together and incredibly ballsy. And come on, um, this movie's fucking funny, dude. This is fun, such a funny shit. movie. It's yeah. so funny, especially when you're a screenwriter and especially when, <laughs> I mean, I laugh my ass off every time I watch this movie and I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say that I must have seen it at least 50, 60 times. So to me, this movie is like, it's so much fun to watch and it's, 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 um, also has rewatch find, value. Yeah. It has an amazing rewatch value and I find it funnier and funnier, especially when I caught up with it, uh, recently for this episode after being uh after working uh as a script reader for four years for the last four years um and having that experience of like reading people's mostly terrible screenplays uh the back and forth between um donald and um and charlie were so hilarious to me about like there's this (laughs) one scene where um 
you know, uh, Charlie Kaufman, Donald Kaufman are, 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 are twins in the film. And uh, Donald Kaufman is just like kind of this like wacky dude who just like kind of does his own thing. And he's just like, I'm going to be a screenwriter. And uh, he comes up and he starts pitching, pitching his like incredibly this really hacky, horrible, like serial killer, multiple personality story. That's the just three. like a, a three. <laughs> and he pitches it. And there's this one moment where uh, Charlie Kaufman actually like starts to analyze it intellectually about like, did you realize that there's no way to write this because the this if they have multiple personality, how is this character going to be here when the other character? And then right in the middle of it, he he goes like, fuck it, it's, it's great. It's dramatically taught, whatever. And I just he, like... He, call, he compares this, it to Dress to Kill. Dress to Kill. And the, the and this time around watching that, like, and I knew, know that scene is coming. I know this movie backwards <laughs> and forwards. Like, I laughed my ass off because it's of so my funny. experience with like, because there are so many times when I read a script that obviously goes nowhere and has those like glaring horrible problems that I have to go into like intellectually analyze and do that thing that Charlie was about to do and it cracks me up so much that he is he's like in a position to just be able to say like fuck it which is something that I wanted to do like in in so many of these assignments that like that really cracked me up and there's a lot of like uh, self-analyzing uh, screenplay self-analyzing stuff like that that really like cracks me up but like uh, but but generally i want to get into like the screenplay of this mm. um the the execution is i feel like it's perfect uh i don't know if anybody like really disagrees with that i think this is one of maybe best nicholas cage performance definitely. or one of his best definitely. it's amazing mm -hmm. it has like like he's playing two he's playing twins he's playing two completely separate characters and the great thing about it is that there's no like real makeup involved. <laughs> it's just all in the acting, and and you can always tell when he's doing Donald and when he's doing Charlie immediately, even I, though they do look like the same. And Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper is amazing. Spike Jones is like uh, just out there. Execution is great. Like all that stuff is like to me, all that stuff is great. Uh, so so do you, I mean I don't know. Do you have any thoughts or issues with? Uh, everything about this film, aside from the screenplay, that we can uh, get into in detail. Issues right. for me, uh, no. Um, I I'm pretty much right with you. I I love this movie, and um, you know I think you know comparing it with Eternal Sunshine, uh, both movies that I think just structurally are are perfect. But it also comes down to that relatability and that emotional core. And it's just like that the 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 angst in the like pursuit of art and the angst of like trying to create something that's important and which uh, Charlie Kaufman obviously explored in being John Malkovich as well, which is my favorite uh, movie that has been adapted from Charlie Kaufman's script. Um, mm. Just it, it, it rings so true to me where uh, um, not that Eternal Sunshine doesn't ring true, but it just doesn't connect with me. Whereas this one, it's like painfully not maybe not to the level that you feel at Octave, but like it's very like it's a painful, but always a like eye opening and rewarding watch for me. There is so much, I think, to praise about the movie. The screenwriting is the funnest thing because it is such a it's I, it might be my favorite movie about movies. I don't know. I should think about that longer because I love like Altman's The Player and movies like that. But I, I don't think anything's ever gotten 
and Octave it's, can it's definitely It's my favorite movie about screenwriting, for sure. Right. Let's call it that, oh, yeah. yeah. Because it's, I'd say Mulholland Drive's probably Ooh. my favorite movie about movies. Oh, that's yeah. a good, that, good choice. That'd, good one. Good that'd one. be a hard one to, to knock so eight, on the they, there's, there's eight and a half. There's, that's you know, true. The that's true. So we'll stick to screenwriting because it is that's the focus of the movie. And it's it's so great on that, but also that it works as an entertainment at the same time. Like, all the meta stuff. What's I think the the biggest trick of this movie is that Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman made an art movie and it's totally accessible for like this movie didn't do great. It cost like 20 million to make. And it looks like uh, in the U S I was looking well, it up. The and joke is that it becomes little... accessible. Yeah. That's right. That's, right. That's, the that's a great, yeah, it's a great touch, but like it, the movie made still like 22 million in just the U S like, can, a movie like Adaptation would not, if it were released today, I don't think it would even make a quarter of that. Yeah. Because yeah. it's too interesting of a movie, but yet it's so accessible that there was a time when it did come out that it was able to kind of get released in a lot of theaters. That's pretty bizarre, but um, it's a very special movie for that alone. But um, I don't know, man. There's It's just so like gleefully entertaining. And if you have any interest in movies or the way they're made at all, like this movie is just so much fun to step into and chew on. So it's um, high praise all around for sure. That's, that's high praise. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You, you, you you just, you put it up on the T and let me hit it. So I had to take it. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. The, 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 the characters that I created here with uh, Charlie and Donald, which are, which I look at as, you know, of course, Donald doesn't exist. Um, mm-hmm. And but apart from like the go to kind of I mean, you know, you can say that the reason, uh, you know, the backstory first, let's let's quickly get into the backstory of how this movie was made. And, sure. you know, it's, it's pretty much like what it's, you see in the film in right. a way that like some around the time when Charlie Kaufman's name was like becoming popular with uh, while being Joe Malkovich was being shot that uh, this production company came up with like, Oh, can you adapt this, the, the book, the orchid thief. And he had trouble, uh, like you see in the film, hopefully he didn't masturbate quite as much. Um, uh, uh, and he kind of went through like a white writer's block period and like came out with this like crazy, insane screenplay where he, he writes himself into it and you can, kind of argue that the reason Donald exists is that that usual that typical screenwriting trope where like oh I can't have just like this one character talking to himself so I need to add a character so that there's like some kind of conversation but I think it goes much deeper than that uh, and mainly because the screenplay is credited to Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman and I think Charlie represents, and it's almost like he him he split himself into these two characters. Like Charlie represents the idealist, uh, artistic-minded, like always trying to like writing is a journey into the mind, like the into the unknown. And I want to make flowers look beautiful, and all that stuff he says at the beginning, like the brilliance the brilliancy uh, the the brilliant part of it is all that stuff he says at the beginning about like I don't want to turn the orchids and the poppies and have them be like drug smugglers and have a chase scene at the end. Like all that shit happens at the end of this movie, of course. <laughs> but you know, he's, he's the guy who's just like uh, idealistic. He's the one who's just like, you know, I just want to make a movie where it's just life, where nothing happens, where, you know, it's uh it's just a whole series of frustrations and the way he sees life. Um, and Donald is like the more uh, industry minded um, 
part of Charlie Kaufman that must exist because uh, if Charlie Kaufman in real life was as kind of clueless about how this industry worked, uh, that he wouldn't be as far as he got. Like he wouldn't mm-hmm. have like sold his script uh, being John Malkovich and he wouldn't have like so there's a part of him that obviously knows how the sausage is made and I think Donald represents that part of him Donald represents the part of him that understands like okay you have to you know the the industry side of him and that's why the screenplay is credited to Charlie and Donald even though Donald doesn't really exist it's a great touch I love that for sure there's an acknowledgement to Donald, I think, after the credits are over, too, at the end of the movie. Um, I think it's... There's a piece of dialogue from his... Right, uh... it's a quote, yeah. And it's... No, it's a quote from the three, uh, from his actual script, and it's a great little touch at the end. And and when Charlie Kaufman was nominated for the Oscar, they had to announce Donald Kaufman as well, which is one of the greatest, like, coups for, like, an artist to kind of take the piss out of the Oscars. It's so, so... I just love that sort of anarchist spirit in that. I love that touch. And I, I, I love the other thing that makes it incredibly painful for me is like the, the feeling, the two sides, the two characters, not only this, the pursuit of the Charlie character wanting to make something like about life, but also wanting to make something that sells. Like I own the screenwriter's Bible, which Robert McKee wrote. Like I, that is a book that is on my shelf. So to see him like go sit Robert McKee in the movie, like for advice, it's just like, Oh, Oh my God. Like putting my hand to my head, just like, <laughs> just it, it, not embarrassed, but just kind of like, yep, that's, that's real life. That's the thing that happens. The, uh, the dynamic between Charlie and Donald is extremely reminiscent to, and especially after Octave was describing it, uh, it made me think of the prestige, the the episode that we yeah. did on the prestige, mm, that yeah, movie is essentially, a... and I think I made that argument and we'd got into that on that episode is how that movie, the Christian Bale character and the Hugh Jackman character represent the split in Christopher Nolan as an artist, as a filmmaker and the push and pull that he has. And I love that. That's essentially what we get with adaptation as well. And for that's both a very interesting parallel and, fits perfectly it's kind of the same thing i and, and it, fit, I, it applies to both charlie and i'd say spike jones as well if you want to like mm. get evident by like doing something like where the wild things are that's like arty but also accessible yeah. for like a general audience even though people another movie that we talked about on an episode pre <laughs> pre mcclanahan era before you had uh, joined on but yeah we talked about where the wild things are as well but i endorse that that is a brilliant film that just so underrated still so, so, so the beauty of this film for me is that while it does this amazing thing of while mocking or parodying both sides in a way that like okay the idealism and the the um kind of maybe maybe misplaced artistry uh, of uh, Charlie Kaufman and also while also mocking like these like hacky uh, kind of strict structuralist uh, just pick a genre and stick with it uh, and just sell your script for like seven figures make a shitload of money and just like that's that's success you're an artist now that kind of like kind of cynical approach to it while trying to like kind of mock both of those sides mm-hmm. it manages to create this perfect balance between the art and commerce part of it while also always being tongue in cheek about both of them. Like it's a, there are, there are scenes in this film that, that 
actually managed to capture what, what the Charlie Kaufman character is talking about. There are scenes in this film that makes flowers look beautiful. Yeah. That that makes like there's this wonderful scene where like it uh, transitions from a passage in Susan Orlean's book about different kinds of orchids and different kinds of bees that are attracted to those orchids into Charlie Kaufman's voiceover about like diff- how he could be attracted to different kind of women. Mm-hmm. And women are like these unattainable orchids in a way that just like he needs to find the right one. And it's just like this beautiful, artful scene that you can tell that like there there are parts of me that just like watch every sequence in terms of like, okay, so this sequence was written by Charlie and then this sequence was written by by Donald. <laughs> And now you, you can like pick those apart, and that's what makes it like so brilliant to me. And like he, he they do a, it's it's a perfect uh, mixing of those two ideologies that makes it that make that makes the film so like kind of interesting and artful, but accessible and funny and fun at the same time. Yeah, no, I mean it's crazy the way he gets to have his that they all do Kaufman Spike Jones everybody in the movie get to have their cake and eat it too and I feel like a big complaint um I think all of us have had about movies like say Kick-Ass or even worse the Kick-Ass sequel but movies like that that try to comment on the thing that they end up becoming in the end there is Mm -hmm. no equal and the reason we will find issues in movies like Kick-Ass which was kind of like a movie a lot of people loved or Kingsman, it, for Kingsman, that if you exactly. Want to go Matthew Mon, Von Route. It's a very good, <laughs> so. exactly. And there's there's a lot of other movies that just aren't coming to mind that mm-hmm. operate yeah, on that true. level. That, that try to do that meta self aware thing, which right. like, I think adaptation was like way ahead of its time. Oh, it's it's in the terms of that, but but they do that without enough tactfulness, without enough, totally. without really understanding what they're getting into. It's almost like this kind of fret boy shallow mentality of like oh well as long as we like self and i i see that in like spec scripts that i read as well that happens a lot it's like as long as we reference the thing that we're ripping off it won't come off as hacky you know like that kind (laughs) of thing or or as long as we kind of have like a couple of tongue-in-cheek self-referential humor uh it'll cover for the fact that we have a, a screenplay that's like riddled with cliches Right, right, and they, there's not enough a comment on that's on those cliches. It's fine, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right, as if that's supposed to excuse the fact that you're using them in the first place. That's what's that's what's so great is that like Kaufman, the perspective of the movie being from a screenwriter, kind of opens him up. It doesn't give him a pass. It just opens him up to a sort of a logic and a pragmatic reason for these things to be explored in the actual movie. It's like this really, it really is a perfect alchemy that he found by doing like an incredibly indulgent thing. And I think Charlie Kaufman is like, you almost have to commend him for how much he puts his self-loathing just out there. And uh, Ryan, you said you hadn't seen, you haven't seen Synexity. That is a movie that is like almost full tilt over, over, it's like overboard with uh, Kaufman self-loathing. It's like an exploration of that, but adaptation has just the right amount. It's not an easy film to rewatch because of like how um, honest, just brutally honest it is. Totally. It's an amazing film, but I've only seen it once. And um, I, I, we might have to watch it on this podcast someday because it's worth exploring again. But yeah, it's great. But yeah, Adam, I'm going to watch it. It's on my list of things to eventually watch. That's, totally. that's one of those rare movies that I did a complete 180 on. Like I had many, many issues with it when I saw it in the theaters. And then I, when I caught up to it, when it, um, a couple months after I was just like in love with it. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a tough movie to crack, but adaptation is like you said, it's, 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 it has this rewatchability because it is accessible and it is funny 
And it is in a way that like, you know, uh, I think the reason why that meta approach works that it doesn't in a lot of these contemporary films that we talk about is mainly because uh, Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones themselves don't take that hokey ending seriously. Right. The whole point is to is 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 how you get to that ending. The whole point is this like setting up like like peppering around the whole script brilliantly all these like references to all these things that happen exactly the way that uh some dialogues reference at the you know like the like I said at the beginning the the meeting with Tilda Swinton's like kind of studio executive character where he just like lays out all these things that he doesn't want to do with the script every single one of them happens at the end um when he kind of like loses completely loses his his way and actually goes to the Robert McKee seminar um and at the end of it, he's just like they go out for a drink, and Robert McKee is like, "Look, I'll give you this one secret. As long as you have an exciting uh, climax, as long as you have you wow them at the end, and you got them. Yeah. It doesn't matter what kind of like meandering, artsy, uh, illogical crap you put in there. Like as long as you wow them at the end, you have them. And that's kind of what he does in a way. It's just mm-hmm. like it's it, it is like this kind of beautifully meandering." a crazy film and then had like all of a sudden like snaps into this like tight um tightly wound like structured uh thriller in the within the last like 30 minutes of it so in a way it's just like you see the evolution of the screenplay as the story progresses um so that's that's you know that's really interesting fascinating stuff to me and it's um it's almost like and also like there's a little bit of a detail that I think uh, I don't know if you guys know much about like the 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 WGA like the Writers Guild rules about like uh, how writers like separate writers on the same film are credited like about like do you know do you guys know the difference between actually typing the words word and and using the ampersand? No, it, and, I've heard that they're very convoluted rules though. So yeah, yeah. So basically, if someone uh, if a bunch of people wrote uh, if you see a bunch of names on the the way that and this is going some somewhere. I'm just not like giving an <laughs> impromptu lesson about uh, screenwriting WGA rules. Um, if you see an ampersand uh, between the names of people who wrote the script, that means they wrote the screenplay together. Uh, if you see the and written out, that means that those writers probably never even met each other. They, you know, like that means that the first writer, uh, worked on the film for a bunch and then they went off and hired another writer. Hmm. Uh, so that means those people didn't work together. And the way that the screenplay is credited in adaptation, it says Charlie Kaufman and written out Donald (laughs) Kaufman. (laughs) That's brilliant. So what he's, what he's trying to say is that. Charlie wrote a bunch of drafts of the script and then Donald pick, picked up and wrote like wrote in all that like the the heist uh, the drug heist and all that stuff and what happens is like there's this brilliant cutoff point uh, in when they're both in New York and Donald is reading Charlie's script and Charlie's saying like I'm stuck how would you finish this how would the brilliant Donald Kaufman finish the script mm-hmm. and then from that point on I feel like Donald's draft completely takes over Totally. It immediately becomes like like the next scene you see is like them spying on Susan Orlean and she goes to the she goes to Florida and she turns into like a drug uh, addict and you But know, like right before it he has that interview with her where he asks her <laughs> who who alive who what oh, famous yeah, yeah. person alive and he Wait. just he goes on a hunch just on her answer that like spins the movie off into his his script. You're right. It totally does. It's so funny. Love like that it becomes it, it totally becomes like Donald's 
uh, script from that point on. Like every single beat, even going down to like what, um, for example, what Robert McKee said about like wow them in the end, but don't you dare bring in a Deus Ex Machina. Right. And that's exactly what happens. He does uh, the do way it. That, uh, the alligator. That, yeah, they're about to die, and then the alligator just shows out of out of nowhere and kills Chris Cooper's character. Like it's, <laughs> and uh, like all that. Like I just love all the like little details about like the for example, um, uh, where Charlie Kaufman is just like at the Robert McKee seminar, and he's just like going crazy. Like I, I'm a fucking loser. Why did I do this? And there's like this like, uh, this like raging voiceover in his head and it's cut off by Robert McKee saying uh, you know God help you if you put voiceover in your film it's sloppy writing <laughs> it's so good it's just like there's stuff like that it's just like that. that's what makes it so accessible and fun to watch that's what um, like caters to Donald's side of things mm-hmm. and it is a beautiful like touching uh, film especially when it goes into like LaRoche's um past and how this character came to be like the parts of it that are straight adaptation the straight adapt adapted scenes scenes adapted straight from the book are actually quite touching and beautiful definitely in in their way so in a way charlie charlie kaufman in the film accomplishes his goal of creating a beautiful film about flowers and donald kaufman wants his um uh, uh donald kaufman's part of the screenplay like accomplishes the you know the accessibility and the fun and the um and finishing it. you know and finishing it basically like that's basically what happens like donald takes over and finishes the last 30 minutes of the script that's why you get that like crazy you know like uh thriller ending all the way to like like the way that the the last 30 minutes from the moment they arrive in florida and this whole thriller aspect of the film begins it is structured the way that Robert McKee, like the way that someone who's like a Robert McKee convert would have structured it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it would have been, it's, it's like, um, it's, it becomes tight all of a sudden. It becomes very plot oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes like the, the, the pacing of it, like, like that whole scene where they're running away from uh, Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper, and there's like this little bonding scene where they have together that's really emotional where they talk about like, Oh, I was in love with this girl in high school and uh, I heard her make fun of me, but I didn't care because that love was mine. And that's such a beautiful scene. But in a way, if you look at it a bit more cynically, the way that I do with, uh, with a lot of screenplays that I read, I'm just like, Oh yeah, that's a great, like kind of break, like a bonding moment before the, the tragedy strikes right after that. Like it's, it's very predictable in a way, but the predictability of it is like part of the joke. Yeah. It's part of the fun of it for sure. I've, um, I've been watching a lot of Mr. Show lately, just revisiting it because HBO Go finally like made all those seasons available. Um, you guys, I'm sure know it, the David Cross, Bob Odenkirk show. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Um, it's fucking brilliant. And Charlie Kaufman has a lot of ties to a lot of people in that world, the alt comedy sort of Mr. Show realm. Um, <clears throat> and I see a lot of adaptation as like upon this recent revisiting of it. Like it was kind of cool to see how they sort of speak to each other, the two. The two, um, essentially the personalities of adaptation and the show, Mr. Show, like they kind of do adaptation feels like it could be a movie length version of an episode of Mr. Show where you set up all these pieces and they always had industry movie industry, Hollywood sort of in jokes in their, in their stuff in Mr. Show. And you can see how it all sort of could weave in. Like I, I, 
it's a Jeepers Creepers superstar. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) And just um, the coupon, the movie, like all that stuff they do in Mr. Show where they're really commenting on the sort of things we suspect about Hollywood that like people from the inside are actually giving us in these sketches or in adaptation of the movie. I, um, it's no grander point than that other than it's been kind of fun to revisit Mr. Show and then see how it still had like, even after it was over with on HBO, it was still reverberating and still does like now that Netflix kind of brought them back. It's, it's just really cool. And it's part of the reason I find adaptation so awesome. And what I found so funny about it is like, Oh, this is just like a really great, Mr. Show's episode stretched out to feature length and it works really well with that. So yeah, I don't you know. You mean run, run, you mean run, Ronnie run wasn't, uh, wasn't a great one. <laughs> not quite up <laughs> to the level of adaptation. adaptation. Yeah. No, not, not quite. Know, what's this, what's this, I keep forgetting, what's this catchphrase? It's like, I didn't do nothing. I didn't do nothing. Some, yeah. I something like that. that. It's, it's something like that. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Ronnie but, yeah, but I, yeah, but I can, I can definitely see your point, Eric, because like, it, it, it makes sense that like that kind of like, it almost feels like, like, yeah, before that whole alternative comedy thing took off, that's like self-referential and has points where you're, just, you're not even sure if it's supposed to be funny or <laughs> right. actually like sad in sad. many ways. And yeah. there's a lot of moments like that in adaptation. And I think it, it, it was before its time in that sense, like that, that kind of comedy, that kind of approach to, to alternative comedy is very, a lot more commonplace now. And I think this film has dated extremely well. Yeah. Totally. I think it, and I think it will continue to age. Well, we're, we're just going to have to wrap it up because I feel like this episode could easily go on to two hours. We're, we're talking about Charlie Kaufman. This can go like exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's what made this one so fun. So, um, Octa, I know you were maybe a little hesitant or worried that we weren't as into this episode, but I think this has been a really fun conversation. And anytime yeah. you dig into Charlie Kaufman, um, there's, there's going to be lots to discuss. So yeah. And, yeah. And I want to say like, regardless of my minor issues with eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, I think this is one of those episodes where like, like, like when we did Ikiru and uh, Tokyo Story, it's it's one of those episodes where I would wholeheartedly still recommend both these films. Um, yeah. To people who are looking for something like if you haven't heard of these films, if you haven't really seen them, I, and if you're looking for like an offbeat and an interesting and incredibly original way of approaching these genres, uh, these two films I think in their own way are are uh, well worth your time. Here, here, for sure. So, yeah, uh, just another reminder, you can find this podcast at theplaylist.net. And that is, of course, a part of the Playlist Podcast Network. We thank um, Rodrigo Perez and everybody at the Playlist for supporting us. And um, on that network, there is, of course, Adjust Your Tracking. Uh, we've got an episode that just went up today um, that is on Nicholas Winning Refn's Neon Demon and some of this crazy South Korean movie, uh, The Wailing, which... Um, I recommend both of you see if you have not. It's um, a blast. Um, it's finally so. hitting uh, SIF theaters next weekend, I think, in Excellent. Seattle. So I'm definitely going to go see it. Do it, man. It's, it is a crazy movie that, holy shit, man. It, it goes off the rails in the last half hour, but it writes the ship at the same time. It's a it's a fun ride, that one. So, yeah, that one's on the next. A- that is on our current AYT. Uh, we've also got a few interviews, one with Nicholas Running Refn on the Playlist podcast and one with the Fitz director, Anna Rose Holmer. So lots of stuff on the Playlist Podcast Network, and even our previous episode of Over Under Movies, which was um, Ryan's Picks. We did the, um, the Last Boy Scout as the underrated, and the overrated being Michael Bay's Bad Boys. So lots to catch up with um, on the network and with Over Under Movies specifically, um, which leads me to my picks, which will be coming up in the next episode. We should say... Um, there might be a bit of a gap in the episodes here, uh, looking like late July, we're probably going to not record until, 
um, until we get through July. So um, look for us maybe in August next. But the next episode, I'm going to... I'm going to bring us down to a gross out alley here, guys. And um, do, do uh, my overrated pick is going to be John Waters' uh, seminal movie, uh, loved by a lot of folks, Pink Flamingos. And my underrated pick is the um, fucking crazy Hungarian movie, I think from 2006 or seven. Uh, it's a movie called Taxidermia. It's from a Hungarian director called Jorgi Pelfi. Um, it's a gross out movie, but it is incredible. So really excited I'm really forward to it. I'll bring my barf bag. Yeah. Bring the barf bag. And you're not going to know how fitting that is my friend until you watch taxidermy. Oh, no. So, uh, <laughs> literally my friend. So yeah, I'm um, looking forward to catching up on those. If you want to keep up with us before that next episode, catch up to those movies, give them a watch. But, um, for now, why don't we sign off on this one? I am, um, Eric McClanahan, uh, playlist podcast editor and also um, host of adjust your tracking i also write for oregon arts watch signing off is ryan oliver i'm a contributor here at the playlist.net hey this is octavia kozak a film critic and contributor for the playlist the oregon herald dvd talk and bayaspreader.com and make sure to look for over under movies we're on facebook and we are on twitter as well you can follow us there and we um also have our original itunes feed still live and if you are subscribed to that and you're maybe you're subscribed to both in this sort of interim stage we're in keep uh keep connected to the original uh over under itunes feed we're going to separate at some point down the road Mm -hmm. so it'll be valuable to keep a hold of that subscription and you'll get all your over under movies there eventually so that, uh, I think that's the only real house cleaning to take care of before we sign off, and we already have signed off, so why don't we, uh, why don't we just say goodbye, and um, uh, I wish I had a line I could quote from one of the movies right now, but nothing's coming to mind, so um, I guess we just got to cue the, um, what's the song at the end of Adaptation? Cue uh, Imagine. Happy Together. Happy Together. Exactly. Cue exactly. Happy Together by the Turtles, and um, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.